is For Me Podcast. In this podcast, we're back with Joan Rimmer, reading Viking Village, the story of Formby, published in 1973 by Edith Kelly and the Formby Civic Society. Viking Village by Edith Kelly, Chapter 10, Old Formby Cottages. In 1953, Mr William Marshalsea, a local historian, made a list of the cottages of Formby that were still inhabited. There were 49 on the list, and several more had only recently been vacated. Another dozen or so had lately been stripped of their thatch and slated. Many of these cottages had been in continuous occupation by members of one family for several generations, and the old people can tell of their great-great-grandparents born in the same cottage and rearing large families there. With this continuity came a careful repair and renewal of the fabric, and old photographs invariably show the cottages looking neat and trim. The householder himself usually made the repairs, and most could rethatch their own homes. The squire provided the straw. Since large barns were also thatched, the local thackers were kept busy. At the time of writing, the nearest thatch barns are at Lunt, and these are in a very decayed state. Straw, not reed, seems to have been used for house thatching, in spite of the abundance of reeds in the local waterways. But on small buildings, such as cart sheds, petties and lean-tos, heather was often used, for it grew plentifully on the peaty warren land around. Suitable wood for house building was often provided by wrecks. A number of cottages have huge cross timbers that show clear signs of having been used in ships. Oak would have grown on the higher land out towards Ormskirk, and bog oak, dug out from the moss, could also be used, though it was very hard to work. The oldest house still standing in 1972 is Dean's Cottage in Ravenmeals Lane, possibly built in the 15th century, but 10 years ago there were several others of similar age. There was a general pattern to which they all conformed, but there were endless variations as householders added lean-tos and outbuildings. Dean's is a typical crook cottage and stood beside a cart track that led off the lane into the fields. In some cases, large stones were used to outline the shape of the house to be, but in Formby, where the stone has to be brought from a distance, most of the cottages were built directly onto the sandy soil. Watts Cottage in Brewery Lane had blocks of stone under the main beams, but most others that have been examined, including Dean's Cottage, had no stone base. The simplest form of crook cottage was made by splitting two tree trunks vertically and standing them together to form two inverted V's, one at each end of the cottage. A strong beam, the ridge pole, joined them and tie beams fixed across at about eight feet above the ground were extended outwards to meet upright posts planted by the foot of the crooks. Horizontal beams rested upon these tie beams and the framework for a single room house was complete. The rectangular space between the two pairs of crooks was known as a bay 
and was almost always about 16 feet in length. The obvious method of enlarging a house was to build on other bays at each end or to add lean-tos or outshuts. Dean's cottage is of three bays. Its door opens into the central room whose roof is open to the rafters and is kept scrupulously whitewashed. A brick fireplace divides this room from the parlour at the eastern end of the cottage, but the fire is screened from the draughts of the doorway by a spear. That is a short wall that goes from floor to ceiling. Whoever sits on the bench against this short wall is sitting in a cosy nook, for the warmed bricks and the shelter from draught make this the most desirable spot in the house. The parlour of Dean's is dark, for the two windows on the north and south sides are small. The bedroom above is reached by a steep wooden staircase and has a small window in the brick eastern wall. A similar bedroom with its own staircase is above the kitchen at the western end of the cottage and in both it is possible to stand upright only below the central beam. The type of window most common in such old cottages as this had six small panes in each side frame and a central sliding frame of six smaller panes. A nail or bolt could be pulled out to release the sliding frame. There was little or no sill to these windows. The timber framed dividing walls were filled in with the traditional wattle and daub also known as stave and daub, or stick and daub. The name varies in different localities, just as the materials varied. For its outer walls, local dark red-brown bricks were used. The mortar between was fairly thick to allow for the unevenness of the handmade bricks. Whilst the outside walls of some cottages were brick, others were of wattle and daub that is painted thickly with whitewash. One would not expect whitewash to be of much use in keeping out the wet, but the local custom was to throw tallow into the slaking lime. This gave a protective skin to the house, which was given a fresh coating each year. Until the mid fifties, a farm on Plex Moss between Formby and Ormskirk had stable and shed buildings of wattle and daub and these had been coated with tar for many years. In disintegration, the clay had fallen away in many places, leaving the tar to crumble away more slowly. Once the yearly coating was discontinued, these clay walls decayed very quickly. Bob Eccles, a postman, lived in a cottage off Kirklake Road, opposite Ward Avenue, which was typical of many. Its chimney was of small bricks and the west wall was also of brick, but at back and front, under many layers of colour wash, was mud in which chopped straw, bits of twig and coarse hair could be seen. The sticks and laths on which the mud was plastered were very uneven in size and spacing, but were so well preserved that the sticks could be identified by their bark as hazel. This cottage was very damp, partly because of the large trees which overhung and shaded it. But other cottages of this type were surprisingly dry. The practice of keeping a good fire burning day and night would help to keep the living room dry. 
but one shivers to think how cold and damp the little bedrooms must have been. Their ventilation too was usually poor. The bedrooms in the roof often had a tiny window that was on a level with the floor and it was often constructed so as not to open at all. Nevertheless, large families of healthy children were reared in these tiny homes. Much of the food was home produced. The row of cottages in Ravenmills Lane near Formby Street was called Hawes Cottages. Hawes is the old Lancashire name for sandhills and these were typical of many. Their gardens extended almost to Duke Street and beyond the rows of vegetables and fruit bushes were pigsties, beehives, hen runs and even a cow shed so that some of the cottages might almost be called small holdings. Goats could be tethered in the many waste places around the village. Indeed, as late as 1960, there were goats and bees in the field between Browse Lane and Duke Street. The importance of drainage ditches in Formby cannot be overemphasised. Every field had its ditches and after heavy rain, they were filled to capacity, emptying themselves into larger ditches such as Dobbs Gutter, and finally draining into the Down Holland Brook. Dobbs Gutter was a wonderful place for catching dockers or jack sharps or tadpoles. A stream similar to that in Long Lane ran from the site of the former Kirk Lake and there was a constant flow of water alongside Queen's Road. Watercress and forget-me-nots grew at the edges of the stream and the last remnants of a row of willows which bordered it may still be seen in a garden at the corner of Brook Road. The Formby revealed by Greenwood's map of 1818 was like a loose network of lanes with knots of cottages bunched together at irregular intervals. As the Liverpool Road entered Formby, it collected cottages along its way to Cheapside, like beads on a string. Coming from Liverpool, the first cottage, just a few yards within the boundary, was a very well-preserved crook cottage whose living room had the high rafters for its ceiling. A newer portion had been added at the south end and the cottage was improved without being spoilt. The bathroom was unique. It was built of huge ship's timbers, so hard as to resist any nail and so crooked as to give the unwary a cracked skull if he stood up quickly in the bath. A little wooden stair led to a low-roofed bedroom whose tiny window was on floor level and could be opened, a labour-saving arrangement for whoever had to sweep the room. The cottage front stood where the strip of grass now is at the corner of Alt Road. This road was cut through the cottage garden. Pheasants, rabbits and hedgehogs came to feed around the house and there was an uninterrupted view from the windows of many miles of almost empty mossland. The parish boundary straggled along the centre of Liverpool Road, passing the smithy, on whose site number 76 now stands, number 76 now stands, and several other cottages were all in Altca Parish. After the Royal Hotel, newly built in the 1870s, there was a little square of cottages of which only two survive, one being a shop. It was Tom, nicknamed Chelsea Rimmer, who had the hotel built and also the brewery behind it for the brewing of his own beer. 
where Raven Mills Lane met Cockle Lane, now renamed Coronation Avenue, there was a cluster of fishermen's cottages and a farm or two. Mrs. Seed's Cottage, Balls, Sutton's Farm and Cahir Farm have all vanished during the last 20 years together with many others. Of them all, only Spanker's Cottage on the corner of Raven Mills Lane remains. A triangular patch of grass around a weeping elm serves to remind us of the Waterings, a larger house which stood end on to Liverpool Road and which had to be demolished when the road was widened. There is some dispute as to their purpose, but several large iron rings were attached to the wall of this house. A field's width separated this little bunch of homes from those that clustered around Cross Green. The short row of houses in Cockle Lane was built by Father Wilfred Carr for his Roman Catholic parishioners. He seems to have been an active and go-ahead priest, for his initiative also had the present conservative rooms built as a club room for his men and boys. It was he who also pressed for the building of a pitcher-drome in Three Tons Lane, for there was very little for the people of Formby to do in the evenings. Councillor James Rimmer, recalls that Father Carr supervised the choosing and screening of the films and also brought electricity to Formby. It was generated behind the club room and was supplied to several houses nearby. There was just one snag. The house lights went off when the cinema closed. The picture drone later became the Queen's Cinema. Close to the Blundell Arms and facing the green, stood a whitewashed shop called Blanchard's The Grocers. Here were sold currenty Formby biscuits of a special kind to be eaten at funerals, washed down with pan mugs of ale. Mr William Marshalsea remembered being given a sip of ale and a Formby biscuit to eat while the grown-ups went into the cottage to help carry out the coffin. Formby Village owes its width and its fine trees to the fact that there were houses on the north side with long front gardens whose big chestnuts were retained when the houses became shops. One chestnut has had to be felled, but the council has planted others. A couple of thatched cottages used to be on the corner of Holsell Lane and a dignified bank rose on their site. Gradually, the gardens gave way to paving stones and the houses to shops, the last to go being numbers three and five Chapel Lane, where Turret House now stands. Number three had a fine pear tree whose flowers cascaded right down beside the Midland Bank itself planted in what had once been their garden. On the south side of the village, each shop had a long garden behind and right in the centre of the street was a tiny cottage whose front garden ran beside the bow-fronted sweet shop. Flocks in several colours scented the air around the air around during the summer. Those three cottages contributed much to the charm of the village. If the older folk of Formby could have one lost building restored to them, almost all would choose to see the Elms, back in its old place at the corner of Elbow Lane and Browse Lane. It was not a pretentious house and it was not very old, for it does not appear on Greenwood's map of 1818. It was the unity of the house and its setting that was so perfect. Tall old elm trees stood along its frontage, just where the cars parked now. 
The lawn surrounding the white stuccoed house was always brilliantly green and in spring clumps of daffodils grew among the grass while a carpet of snowdrops lay under the trees. The two-storied house was thatched and gabled and had a paddock behind its small orchard which stretched to the football field. A few of the fruit trees are still to be seen behind the shops which were built on the site of the house and its stable. It was in the garden of the elms that the plant Gallinsoga parviflora, now so common in this area, was first reported, growing wild in Britain. The last occupants of the house renamed it the Priory and replaced the thatch with slate, but nothing could alter the fact that the house was damp and riddled with woodworm and it was demolished in stages in the 1960s. A line of shops being built almost exactly along the line of the front of the house. At mention of the elms, we all recall with a smile the green parrot whose cage was hung on a tree in the front garden in the sunshine. It would give loud wolf whistles when folk were passing and its shrill calls could be heard halfway down the village. The removal of the house and its trees and lawns in 1966 took away a charming feature of the old village. Years ago, there was a small thatched sweet shop fronting Browse Lane between the elms and the field. This gave way to a bakery and then to a curious lock-up shop, which had a large elm tree growing in front of its doors. Customers to the shop had to dodge around the tree. It was in 1896 that the parish council decided that the western end of Chapel Lane be known as Browse Lane. Browse seems a curious name for a lane until one realises that a brow is the Lancashire name for a slope and that there actually were sandy slopes here at the turn of the century. Marsh Browse Lane is a continuation of Browse Lane which ran across a marshy area and joined Kirklake Road opposite the present Ward Avenue. Just beyond Marsh Cottage on the corner of Freshfield Road, a path led into the sawmill owned by a branch of the Formby family. Old postcards of Formby Station show the brick chimney of the sawmill rising above the little whitewatch cottage of Cole Harry Maudsley. The railway line running along what had been Harry's garden cut the track from the village to St Luke's Church. In Marsh Brow's cottage lived a Mrs Hales who ran a riding school in the field full of harebells and heather that is now Granton Close. A pupil of long ago recalls that her girl pupils were taught to ride side saddle as she herself did. It is difficult to imagine a Formby in which a large area of land was unused and was fenced only by sandy copse. Travelling circuses and fairs were held on such pieces of land and the site of the council offices was one of them, the Bobby Horse Field. That's what children called it. Another site used for fairs was the field beside the Bay Horse in Church Road. The Bay Horse was altered in 1956. Until then, it was a simple slated cottage with a door between the two small front rooms and a pump and trough at the corner of the house. In the days when it was run by two ladies, the customers used to haul up the casks from the shallow cellar whose trapdoor was just inside the front door. Beer was poured from flower-patterned flower jugs 
and business was brisk on the days when the field next door was used as a fairground. At the corner of Church Road and Kenyon's Lane, diagonally opposite to Our Lady's School, were four low cottages standing where the pavement now is. At different times, one was a saddler's, one a greengrocer's, in one lived a window cleaner, and at one, according to the sign over the door, you could buy teas and refreshments. Since these were tiny cottages with one room upstairs and one room down and a lean-to at the back, one wonders how the family all managed to squeeze in, let alone the customers. White House Farm, a little farther along the lane, was a Rimmer stronghold and its high hawthorn hedge stretched uninterrupted to the Jubilee Hall. White House Lane was later cut through the field from Church Road to Watchard Lane. After this, the cows from the farm would plod across the road and along to their accustomed pastures or down the new lane and slowly along Watchard Lane, turning up Mittens Lane to the fields beyond. In 1972, White House Farm stands empty, waiting for development. And the cows no longer startle passers-by with their sudden bellows from the other side of the wall. This must have been one of the last farms to keep its old-fashioned range and open fire with its steel fender and hob for the kettle. Under the high mantel shelf, socks hung to dry and solid flat irons lay along the fire rack. A dog would lie on a sack on the stone flagged floor and a horned cattle drench hung on a nail near the pipe rack and toasting fork. All was as it had been at the turn of the century. In the yard too were relics of former days. A big pink shell lay on the windowsill and tall tapering milk churns stood on the well-worn cobblestones. Beyond White House Farm, the Queen's Jubilee Hall was built, as its name suggests, in 1887. Until this and the Victoria Hall were erected, a room at the Grapes was the meeting place for assemblies of any size. The Grapes itself newly built in the 1870s and described in glowing Victorian terms as handsome and commodious, is still one of the better looking buildings in Formby. Its oval Victorian pillar box stood on the corner and the mounting steps may still be seen for they were incorporated in the design of the porch. The pillar box for all its bulk had a small and narrow slip for letters and local people were not sorry to see it replaced by a newer model. Diagonally opposite on the corner of Pierceville Road is the only remaining wellhead that is visible from the road. It was complete with red tiled roof and squeaking roller and was used for watering the gardens until a few years ago. Next to the Embassy Cinema in Green Lane was, and still is, a charming group of cottages, the first of which is Ivy Cottage or Thimble Hall to the Sandgrounder. Ivy Cottage and May Cottage are adjacent and partly joined to one another and are thought to be about 350 years old, since the date 1620 is inscribed on internal brickwork. A coin dated 1690 was found when the fireplace was being replaced by previous owners. May Cottage was originally three separate dwellings, each having one room upstairs and one room down. It is of crook construction, has two spiral staircases, and shows wattle and daub interior walls. 
The thatch has been replaced by tiles which the weather has mellowed and the cottages are in such good condition that they should last for many years to come. Number 21, Green Lane, the home for over half a century of Mr and Mrs Charles Aindo, is larger than it first appears to be. During the last century, it was a farm with a dairy room at the far end and a paddy room for the use of the Irish seasonal workers who came over for the harvesting and potato picking. Many farms had such seasonal workers and kept rooms for them. Holly House in Duke Street had a separate building, which is still called the Paddy House. It has a room with a fireplace below and a loft above it, in which the men slept on straw during their stay. Certain Irish families became attached to one farm and the men returned year after year to help with the harvest. A little farther along Green Lane, opposite St Peter's Church, is the vicarage, once an inn called the Formby Arms. It was at one time the home of the Reverend Lonsdale Formby and later of the Reverend Thomas Bishop, then a private house, and now, since 1967, the home of the Reverend and Mrs Thomas. This corner is one of the most beautiful in Formby, with church, pub, cottage, walls and stables all mellowed and in harmony and all backed and linked by tall trees. At the far end of Massams Lane, where it joins Green Lane, is the old parsonage, the one built in 1772. West Lane runs out of Massams Lane and is linked to Paradise Lane by Brewery Lane. An 18th century tithe barn used to stand in West Lane, opposite the large building, which has, has served successively as convent and approved school. In 1969, Brewery Lane lost a particularly picturesque thatched cottage called of late years Watts Cottage. Isabella Rimmer, the great-grandmother of the last occupant, was born in the cottage. Her father was an Aindo and was coxswain of the Formby lifeboat. The great split tree trunks which form the frame framework of this crook cottage were staged upon large blocks of sandstone and the house was very similar to Dean's cottage, both in age and in appearance. The living room ceiling reached up to the roof, but the rooms at each end of the cottage had low ceilings with rooms above. The window of the living room looked across heathery fields to Bishop's Court School, or looking left over miles of flat open fields with the low Cleves Hill in the distance. Shortly before the roof collapsed, the cottage presented almost the appearance of a museum. So many relics of the past remained there. Over the doorway was a yoke resting on the big nails ready for use. On the wall hung an iron man trap. Luster jugs, horse brasses and many other items spoke of the 18th and 19th centuries. Between the brewery gate and Watts Cottage, across the stile, ran a footpath to Masson's Lane, coming out near a thatched cottage whose interior timbers are obviously salvaged from a wrecked ship. At one time, there was many as 13 people living in the cottage, Mr Rimmer and his father working upstairs at their task of boot repairing. A daughter of the family is still living there. 
1818 map shows that Formby consisted of several main lanes which converged at Cross Green. We have come into Formby from the south and have travelled up Church Road to the extreme north of the town at Brewery Lane. And now we turn south again down Gores Lane, pausing a moment to admire the whitewashed and slated cottages on the corner opposite the Freshfield Hotel. Victoria Road cuts across Gores Lane. It was in the late 1800s that most of Victoria Road was built. Large family houses for the merchants, ship owners, bankers and businessmen who wanted to live in the fresh air of Formby whilst working in the smoke of Liverpool. Their houses were models of Victorian comfort, for servants were easily obtained from the village and cooks, housemaids, gardeners and boot boys trudged or cycled daily from their small thatched homes to these larger ones. Indeed, there was considerable prestige in working at a big house. The more important the employer, the more glory was reflected, reflected upon his servants. Although some were niggardly and some had odd foibles, many employers are still spoken of with respect and affection and their fine homes and gardens are recalled with nostalgia. Many a good gardener was trained in the well-run grounds of such a house, of such houses as the Hay, Breeden, Osborne House or Birchwood. Some of the gardens were enormous by present-day standards. The Hay, for example, stretched from beside St Peter's Church to Paradise Lane. Where Tim's Lane meets Gore's Lane, there is Linton Cottage, early 18th century, with a thatched roof and mellow browny red bricks. It must have been a small farm cottage with a little shippen, which was later incorporated into the cottage. Like many others, it still has its wrought iron strap hinges on lugs on its interior doors. All down Gore's Lane, there were cottages at intervals. Often they were approached by crossing little bridges over the ditch. Victoria Farm was one of these. A bungalow beside the Ginnell now stands on the same site. The attractive group of cottages in Gores Lane, near the junction with Piercefield Road, faces an uncertain future. The roof of number 62 has already fallen in, but its neighbour is still in, kept in good order. These cottages are very old, one-storied, timber-framed with sliding casements of the old type. Three pairs of crooks are visible inside with cross ties. The original ridge and purlins with curved braces are still there and there is a gun rack at the side of the fireplace. At number 62, a Miss Potter and her mother kept a little pork butcher's business that is still remembered for the excellence of its wares, almost all home produce. Down the long garden were the pigsties, fruit trees and currant bushes, and the women were adept at making pork pies, brawn, sausages, pickles and jams of all kinds. On one side of the shop was crockery and glassware, and the whole shop was so clean you could eat off the floor. Later the little shop became a florist's, and Ted Aindo, who was also the verger of Holy Trinity Church like his father before him, sold wreaths and crosses there. He was the last occupant of the taller, more recently built house next door and was one of the characters of Formby.
At one time, the Marshalsea family lived in that house. Mr Marshalsea was the registrar for the district and rates and taxes were paid there. Many people still living had their births recorded in Gores Lane and some whose births he registered were also buried by him for he was also, for a time, the sexton of St Peter's Church. The Marshalsea, one of the earlier of the many new roads in Formby, was named after William Marshalsea, his son, once a pupil of St Peter's School and a keen local historian. Bill was a genial bachelor, a pillar of Holy Trinity Church and a very popular man in the community. His collection of material relating to Formby's history was unfortunately destroyed after his death and he is per perpetuated only by the road name. White Cottage, opposite, stands end, end on to the road. Together, the whitewashed trio form a picturesque group and it would be a great loss to the road if they are destroyed. Another attractive group could have been found in Priest House Lane until a few years ago. One old thatch cottage, a stone's throw from the Bay Horse, has been rescued and lovingly restored. A little beyond it, at the bend in the leafy lane, stood the Priest House, with Chapel House Farm still standing in 1972, next door. Even in its prime, the Priest House was not a noteworthy building. It was constructed of small handmade red-brown bricks and had a steep pitched stone roof with two dormer windows. No porch or carving adorned the house, which was entered through a garden wall from the sandy lane. A stone-flagged corridor ran down the centre with the rooms right and left. Mrs E. M. Sutton lives in Chapel House Farm next door. This farm, thatched and in good order, has a broad central staircase, an unusual feature in that type of cottage. At some time in the 1830s, the farmhouse, which had been converted from stables, passed to the Sutton family from the Formbys of Fairwood, who also owned the priest house or chapel house. Five lanes met just beyond Chapel House Farm by the Pinfold. Bullcop, Priest House Lane, Kenyon's Lane, Flaxfield Road and Watchard Lane. The pound or Pinfold was stone built and roughly circular, six feet high and closed by a stout tarred gate. A gas lamp stood close to the wall and the old Pinfold made a good trysting place. Demolished in 1928, the pinfold was no longer needed by then. In summer, these lanes were very pleasant, but in winter, when cattle had to be driven along them twice a day, they became filled with mud and deep holes. Ditches lined the lanes and little plank bridges crossed in front of each cottage. Flaxfield Road has now been straightened and joins Bull Cop a few yards before the busy junction. Kenyon's Lane in the 1930s was deeply shadowed by big elms and still had a farmhouse and barns on the north side and farm cottages on the south side. During the 1950s, an old gentleman said his father, as a boy, passed a stable on his way to school. He and the other boys used to hold their noses and dare each other to go inside, for big casks held flax stalks tied in bundles and left in water in the casks until the green part rotted. The old man said that the flax was grown in the field by the pinfold 
hence Flaxfield Road. Branches of the Formby family built several good-sized houses at the southern end of the village in the vicinity of St Luke's Church, newly consecrated in 1855. Besides Firwood, there was Shorrocks Hill, now a country club, and Kirklake Bank, finally demolished in 1972. Trap Hill and Kirklake Bank faced each other across the shallow Kirklake. Dr Formby, who had Kirklake Bank built, lived at first in what later became St Luke's Vicarage. Early photographs show these houses and the church standing stark and treeless in fields fenced with neat white posts. Demolition faced St Luke's Vicarage in the 1960s, but fortunately it was reprieved and was sold when the new vicarage was built. Past Trap Hill ran Queen's Road, straight inland to resume its old name, Ravenmills Lane, after meeting the railway line at Eccles Crossing. The crossing named after the large farm that once covered the Elson Road area. Andrews Lane and its cul-de-sac Andrews Yort were named after Andrew Brown, who lived during the 18th century and whose orchard here was locally renowned. His farm must have become covered with blown sand, for during the digging of channels for drainage pipes, turf was discovered under several feet of sand, some of the plants in the turf being still identifiable. The little gabled cottage that stands on the seaward side of Eccles Crossing was the lodge to, grain, to Grangewood. The railway separated them. At one time, a private lunatic asylum, Shaftesbury House, became a nursery for brutal evacuees during the Second World War. Between the house and Ravenmills Lane was a copse filled in spring with masses of crocuses. A footpath led alongside the railway lane to Shaftesbury House to Hogs Hill half a mile south. The footpath is long closed, but Hogs Hill Farm is worth mention for few farms or cottages in Formby are as well documented as this one. The earliest lease is in 1683, when it was leased to Margaret Jump for the li lives of herself and her son Richard, and its ownership through the centuries is recorded in 1717, 1739, 1741 and 1769. It was occupied by Thomas Norris in 1848, by Mr J Becker in the middle of this century and is now in possession of Mr Hannon, who kindly supplied this information. Despite its transformation into a modern home, much of the farm's old construction remains. It was originally a crook cottage of two bays and the beams and much of the mud and wattle remain as they were in 1683. The large thatched barn beside the house was used for dances at one time and groups of young people thought nothing of walking across the field paths by the light of lanterns containing guttering candles. The village mortuary stood secluded among the trees behind Hogshill Farm and many a shipwrecked sailor must have been brought to it from the shore. Alka Lane used to be called Back Lane, the lane at the back of the farm. At its junction with Hogs Hill Lane stood a large stone trough. I used to stand on the rim of the trough and look across the, 
the buttercup fields towards Dean's Cottage in Raven Mills Lane, recalls one lady. And there wasn't a tree or a hedge between those days, just low cops dividing the fields and dozens of skylarks singing. Park Farm, was, whose entrance from Raven Mills Lane has now been blocked, was large by Formby standards. The date stone on the wall of the big barn read 1837, but the stone on the older portion bore no decipherable date. The first remembered holder of the farm was named Sharples. Then came a Wright who trained greyhounds for the Alka coursing. Then Edward Sutton, followed by his son Tom, who farmed there for 43 years. On a fine day in May, when the huge horse chestnut was bloom, in bloom, and the straw show, showed bright yellow against the brown-red bricks, when cows ambled into the yard, and hens, ducks, dogs and calves were scattered among the brilliantly green grass, Park Farm was a lovely and lively place. Its name has been given to the school which stands on the site of the farmhouse, and to the estate which has sprung up on its arable land. A little path led from the farmhouse to its thatched neighbour, Dean's Cottage. This is Formby's greatest treasure, a cook cottage dating from the 15th or 16th century, yet sound and basically unaltered. Most of the 50 or so cottages occupied in 1950 fell into decay through age and neglect, but Dean's has been kept in trim, its thatch repaired, its wall white, walls whitewashed and its wooden gutters renewed in the traditional style. Until recent years, when a false ceiling has been put across it, the central portion of the cottage was open to the rafters and the split branches and heavy beams were whitewashed. Knots and bark still show in places. Dean's had until recently another feature that is still seen on a few local houses. Instead of a chimney, Slates are shaped to a point and placed on edge, to, for, on edge to form a chimney. Earlier still, four bricks were placed on end and a heavy stone slab was laid across them. On the opposite side of the road to Dean's, on a triangular site that is bounded by King's Road, is a cottage with a gabled porch. This is the old St Luke's School. It used to consist of one large room with a tall window at the King's Road, King's Road end and a porch where the pupils hung their clothes. Men now in their 60s were pupils at the little school, which was superseded by the one built in Jubilee Road. Mrs Dickinson, the schoolmistress, drove to school in a trap, bringing her own two children with her as pupils. Small boys vied for the job of leading the pony and tethering it to the school fence, recalls one man, adding that the schoolroom must have held 72 children of all ages. Tuppence a week we paid, giving it in first thing on a Monday morning, and we learnt the three R's thoroughly, and could say our tables aloud, backwards or forwards, likewise the pence tables. Cottages, both slated and thatched, were dotted at intervals, along Ravenmills Lane, but few are now left. Two of a picturesque row near Walker's Close retain their charm. They date from the early 19th century and Old Spanker's Cottage at the junction of Liverpool Road has had its low roof raised by six feet and has been rethatched.
In Berkey Lane, not far away, there stood until the mid-1950s an old stone-roofed barn with a cottage beside it. The cottage, much altered, remains and was at one time a small inn. The lifeboat was painted on its end wall and the name has been given by the new owner to the renovated house. One important road, not so far mentioned, was Watchard Lane, lying to the east of the village, running roughly parallel with Gores Lane. From Chapel Lane, School Lane ran past the Roman Catholic Chapel, now used as a convent, into Kenyon's Lane, an old highway that is marked on the street map of 1818. Watchard Lane starts where Kenyon's Lane, Priest House Lane, Bullcop and Flaxfield Road meet and it runs north towards Southport, crossing the bypass at Moss Side. The appearance of the lane has completely changed in the last few years, but the council has been careful to keep local memories green by giving the old farm names to the new roads that have displaced them. Mrs Alice Mitten came to Formby from Todmorden many years ago, little thinking that Mitten's Lane would be called after her. A sturdy old lady with a strong, deep voice. She lived to be 102 years old and was still clear-minded and active. After her husband died, she kept a little general shop in the parlour of her thatch cottage, the sort of shop Beatrix Potter might have described. Cows plodded past it. Her garden and the fields all around were full of flowers and Watchard Lane was then a shady tunnel of elms and willows. A thatched smithy stood close by and a cluster of small cottages faced Smithy Brow Farm. Mrs Mitten's own cottage had the strange name Scotch Lakes, see chapter 4. Smithy Brow was farmed by Jim and Billy Rimmer, both bachelors. Jim's nickname was Catton and Catton Green is named after him. Another Rimmer family lived in one of the cottages opposite and more Rimmers were in Cable Street just around the corner so nicknames were very necessary. About midway along Cable Street, there is a gap in the houses that leaves an entrance to the school. Here stood the old mill and mill cottage. Anne Lonsdale Formby of Shorrocks Hill made a painting in 1885 that shows a mill of whitewashed brick standing a little back from a leafy lane with thatched cottages in front of it and the tall trees of Deansgate Lane in the distance. Cable Street Mill was first a windmill and then went over to steam. The old mill was in an old mill lane behind the present cottages, one of which claims to be the miller's cottage. It has a plaque over the front door. Another of Miss Formby's paintings shows it to have been a post mill standing in cornfields with a cluster of outbuildings around it. When the old mill was demolished around the turn of the century, the struts from its four sails were used to make a fence for the front garden of Mill Farm nearby. This thatched farmhouse and its outbuildings fronted Old Mill Lane and its orchard ran along, alongside Church Road. Alderson Crescent and Graben Road were then fields and until the 1880s, open farmland stretched right down to School Lane, crisscrossed by footpaths and seamed by ditches. Several footpaths led from the village to Moss Side on the eastern border of Formby, the brook forming the boundary with Altca. Beside the stream with its white posted bridge, a cart track led on the Formby side 
to a small cluster of cottages standing in flower-filled gardens. The Bridge Inn stood a little back from the track and although it was burnt down many years ago, it is still remembered as Mother White Stockings Place. A-L-E was painted in large letters on the end gable of their cottage and could be seen from the road. Lee Farm is in Bill's Lane, that crooked and muddy little cart track that leads from Ravenmills Lane to Hogs Hill Lane. Time is fast running out for it now, but it was once one of the most prosperous and attractive farms in the district, recalls Mrs Mercer, who formerly lived there. The cottage opposite belonged to the farm, and when it was not wanted for a farm worker, it used to be let to summer visitors. Most people can tell you little about their homes, but although she is in her 90s, this little old lady, the last of a long line of tyras to live in the house, built originally by a tyra, has many tales to tell. An old-fashioned curved spoon she still keeps in her tea caddy is one her father brought home from a shipwreck. Many a local family possesses articles retrieved from wrecks, among them some fine luster jugs from a ship's cargo of pottery. A cottage was demolished in King's Road in 1971. It stood at the head of Phillips Lane and was the home of Jack Whiteside, a member of the Formby Silver Band, whose bandmaster was Bob Eccles, the postman. They practised in a wooden garden hut just over the cop from Jack's home and made passers-by jump by suddenly breaking into full sound as they rehearsed their Christmas carols. The band ceased to exist during the 1950s and the wooden hut was burnt down in 1969. Not far away at the corner of Elbow Lane stood a thatch cottage which was marked on the, on the 1845 tithe map and was rebuilt in 1957. It was in three parts, the oldest near the church having beams stuck into the ground and curved right to the roof. The exterior walls were of two-inch handmade brick with interior walls of wattle and daub. Downstairs, a man would have to stoop, but upstairs, he would stoop even in the middle of the room. The middle portion, also thatched, was not as old, and a third section had been added in about 1890. This part was retained when the house was modernised. Tradition says that this was Formby's first post office, in use before Marley's Cottage, which was later displaced by Holy Trinity School in Browse Lane. John Barrett, a shoemaker, lived here and was something of a character. He was a veteran of the Indian Mutiny and worked at his trade in the oldest part of the cottage. His workshop seems to have been a popular place for people to meet and gossip as they watched him work. He had a different last for every customer, said a one-time crony, and if you had a bunion or a hammer toe, it was marked on the last for all to see, for the lasts, with their owner's names, hung on the wall behind him. A Formby Musical Society programme of 1898 carries many advertisements, which make diverting reading nowadays. John Barrett's read, For good understanding and a firm and solid footing, go to Barrett's, the anatomical bookmaker of Elbow Lane. Blocks of sandstone forming a buried wall at the church end of his garden indicate a farm building at that spot in the far distant past.
In other places too, interesting fragments of Formby's past have come to light. In Alka Road, for example, a sandstone tablet was recently turned over in the garden of number 22 and was found to, be, to bear the initials RE and the date 1683, a 17th century Eccles maybe. One of the hazards of living in a village of thatched houses was the danger of fire. The fire bell, a ship's bell, hung in the centre of the village and when the alarm was given, everyone would turn out to help salvage furniture, haul buckets up, up wells and try to douse the fire before it got a hold in the thatch. Sometimes, however, the whole roof had to be replaced. The picturesque cluster of cottages at the corner of Southport Road were all originally thatched. It was a spark from a passing steam train that set light to the thatch of Sunnyside Farm in Montague Road and the whole long range of roofs, house, shippen, barns, stables and byre had to be replaced by slate. Bill Bond worked the farm in those days. The farmhouse is still there, shorn of its orchard and of almost all its outbuildings but it still has interesting features. Over the old fireplace with its steel bars is a brass plate salvaged from the wreck of the furnace withy boat, the Ulster Moor. As was the case at many farms, two wells were sunk at Sunnyside at no great distance from each other, one for domestic use and the other for farm use. At Hogshill Farm, the two wells were within feet of each other and the pump and the big stone trough of one well still remain. At some of the, the larger houses, the well was in the kitchen, but at outlying farms like Cabin Hill, it must have been an irksome chore to draw water every day, even in the 20th century, when everyone else was merely turning a tap. On the other hand, the few people who were still drawing their water from wells maintained that the water tastes better than tap water. In 1972, the four cottages at the end of Lark Hill Lane use a hand pump. Lark Hill Farm, Sand Hills Cottage near the shore and Asparagus Cottage, now isolated downrange lane, are all still getting their water from wells. At Clovenleydale Farm, a wind pump was in use until 1968, but an electric pump is now installed. None of the large houses in the district is of any great age. Until the coming of the railway, the priest house was probably the biggest house for many miles, apart from Formby Hall. Among the earlier of the Victorian houses, and certainly one of the most interesting, was Garswood in College Avenue, on the corner of St Peter's Avenue. In its prime, it was a pleasant example of a Victorian family house. One wing contained a stable with harness and storage rooms. This stable fascinates modern youngsters for it has three iron pillars, the centre one standing free at the end of a dividing grill and each post is surmounted by the iron head of a horse. Blue tiles on the wall give the stable a touch of luxury. Inside the house, the thick mahogany doors remain with their strong locks and handsome brass finger plates. The staircase retains its unusual iron balustrade and the ceilings have also been left unchanged. Offices were billeted in the house during the First World War. 
and they left a bullet hole in the gilded ceiling of the drawing room. Dr Beamer, who lived in the house for many years, is still remembered for his peacocks, which strutted about on the front lawn. He had an attractive aviary constructed to his own design, with a rustic summer house beside it. Most of the iron veranda is intact, and the typically Victorian ventilator with its shingles and weathercock still sits above the wing that faces the railway line. The summer house is decayed. The peacocks are gone, together with the fine pair of brass lamps that stood in front of the doorway. But the house remains gracious and dignified behind its trees and rhododendrons, its black iron scrollwork casting lacy shadow patterns on the white walls. Formby Podcast is an independent production. It comes to you free. If you'd like us to tell your story, or you know of a story, contact us at formbypodcast at gmail.com. See you next time.